Hello, uh, good afternoon uh, to everyone joining us uh, from, uh, um, and good morning to everyone joining us from the Gulf, uh, the Middle East in large, and from the UK. Uh, welcome to this webinar. Uh, I have uh, the great pleasure to be uh, moderating this webinar today. My name is Aisha Al-Sarihi, and I am a research fellow uh, in the Middle East in Institute here at the National uh, University uh, uh, in Singapore. Um, I'm delighted to be uh, having a discussion today uh, around uh, this recently published book um, uh, titled The Governance and Domestic Policymaking in Saudi Arabia. Uh, as you know, uh, Saudi Arabia in 2016 launched uh, Vision 2030 and uh, the National Transformation Programs. And this book covers uh, many aspects uh, of the development uh, that are taking place in Saudi Arabia, be it in the labor, defense, health, youth, energy, and the environment sectors. So um, I, I think a broad question that we will uh, try to tackle today is um, where the kingdom is standing today uh, in uh, achieving the objectives of uh, the Vision 2030 and whether it is in track uh, on achieving the, uh, the objectives uh, of the vision uh, since uh, we are six years um, uh, now down uh, since its launch in 2016. To answer this question and more, I am very delighted to be joined today uh, by the two editors uh, of this book and two authors who have contributed to this book. Today, uh, we have, um, first of all, we have Dr. Mark Thompson, who is a senior research fellow and the head of the socioeconomic program at King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies uh, in Riyadh, uh, who also has been previously an assistant professor at the uh, Middle East Studies at the King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals. Uh, Dr. Mark, uh, along with uh, publishing this book, he actually published another four books, uh, uh, including the Saudi Arabia and the Bath to the Political Change, a National Dialogue and Civil Society, published in 2014. Uh, the other book is on the policy making in the GCC, um, published in 2017. And another uh, book uh, published by the Cambridge University Press on the uh, being young male and Saudi. Um, and the, the last book is on the governance uh, um, uh, and, and domestic policy making, which we are going to have the discussion around today. Uh, we also have um, uh, Dr. Neil Quillam, uh, who is um, uh, currently um, uh, a director of the SRMG think tank and a managing director at Azure Strategy Consulting and associate fellow uh, at the Chatham House uh, Middle East uh, and North Africa program. Dr. Neil's uh, uh, research interest is uh, in the areas of the energy policy, the geopolitics, um, the foreign affairs uh, with extensive uh, knowledge and experience in the Middle East, North Africa, um, and uh, in the MENA region, generally. He, he also published uh, 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 many books, including this book and articles on the international relations, 
the political economies uh, of Syria, Jordan, Iraq, and the GCC states. Uh, I'm also happy to welcome uh, soon to be Dr. Jessica Obeid, who is an independent consultant focusing on the energy transition. Uh, uh, Jessica is a non-resident scholar at the Middle East Institute in Washington, DC, and uh, has a dual uh, affiliation in the energy and economics program uh, and the, uh, in the Lebanon program. She is a fellow at the Lebanese Center for uh, Policy Studies uh, in Beirut. Uh, she is also serving as senior global advisor at Azores Strategy in London. Uh, uh, Jessica has obtained, uh, uh, has uh, actually has published widely and regularly uh, in uh, in the area of the Middle East, uh, Africa, and uh, Europe um, in the area of the energy transition. Uh, I'm also happy to welcome uh, with us uh, Dr. Hana Al Muaybed, uh, who is. Um, uh, a qualitative researcher um, uh, focusing in the, the area of disrupting understandings of education, work, youth, and gender in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf Cooperation Council. Uh, Dr. Hanna is affiliated with several research institutes, uh, and uh, including the King Faisal Center for Research and Studies in Riyadh. She is also currently an associate fellow at the Chatham House as well as a visiting research fellow at the Middle East Center uh, of the London School of Economics. Um, uh, uh, she is uh, uh, currently also advising Zad Culinary uh, Academy in Al-Khobar uh, in uh, curriculum and strategy and works on multiple initiatives for women uh, development. Thank you uh, uh, to all of you for joining uh, uh, us today, uh, and I really look forward to uh, the discussion that we are going to have. Before we delve on the discussion, I just want uh, to remind uh, our audience that um, we do have a window for the uh, questions uh, uh, after we have the discussion with the panelists. And if you have any questions, please feel free uh, to post them in the chat box, uh, and we will be happy to take them. And if you have any specific question for any specific speaker, please uh, feel free uh, to uh, you know, specify the name of the speaker. With that, I would like uh, to start the discussion today. Um, and I will pose my questions, uh, first of all, to both Mark and Neil. Um, and I have two questions for you, um, and uh, I'll leave it to you, like who wants to start first. The first question is, um, why is why this book? You know, uh, there are too many books uh, published out there uh, on Saudi Arabia. Uh, some of them, uh, the majority is for, uh, focusing on the foreign policy and the geopolitical position of Saudi Arabia. Some of them has focused on the domestic uh, uh, policy as well. So that was that is my first question. The other question is that, uh, you know, um, in light of what have been discussed uh, in the book and also in light of the recent developments that we have seen or taken place uh, in Saudi Arabia since the launch of Vision 2030, six years ago, 
what are the uh, major aspects uh, of transformation the kingdom has witnessed uh, so far? And uh, do you think that the kingdom, um, you know, uh, or where the kingdom is standing today in achieving the objective set in the vision 2030? I'll Thank you very much, Aisha. Um, thank you for the introduction. Thank you for organizing this webinar. Um, thank you to the Middle East Institute at the uh, National Ber University of Singapore for organizing this as well. Um, <coughs> apologies, I have a slight cold, um, but uh, hello from Riyadh. Um, but also, Aisha, you failed to mention that you actually contributed an excellent chapter to this book. So, um, you know, you have as much to, to offer as, as all of us as well. Um, <clears throat> why this book? Well, um, I mean, as you said, I mean, uh, there are not, there aren't a lot of, of publications which focus exclusively on sort of domestic governance and policy making in Saudi Arabia, especially across sort of different sectors, uh, including the ones that you mentioned earlier. So I think that, you know, this means that, that, that the focus of this book is quite new. And, you know, I'd like to sort of quote what Professor Tim Niblock said when he reviewed this book. And, you know, he says that, you know, it, it provides a different level of inquiry from that of most other works because its focus is not necessarily on the big economic and strategic issues facing the kingdom, but on the processes and problems of policy making on everyday matters. You know, and very importantly, you know, he stresses that for most Saudis, it is at this level that they experience um, more, most directly the impact of government policy, whether positively or negatively. And I think that's, you know, that's a very important point, um, you know, because obviously, you, you know, you can't understand the way a state operates unless you, you know, you study its society or societies. And, you know, in the case of Saudi Arabia, very diverse societies with differing norms spread over a very wide geographic area. And as you said, you know, a great deal of this literature uh, on the kingdom and the analysis, the reporting, there is often sort of a tendency to sort of, you know, highlight the high politics, if you like, rather than the low politics. But actually, you know, as we all know, Saudi Arabia is an extremely young country in terms of its demographics, you know, with something like, you know, 60% of the population, you know, be under the age of 30. So, you know, for, for the young people of Saudi Arabia, you know, um, and what interests them, I mean, you know, it's very often, the important issues are actually those issues that are in the areas of low politics, whether that's education, employment, healthcare, um, and you know this necessitates us studying these areas um, because I mean this this is actually what's 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 what young people, what the majority of the population in the country talk about most of the time. Um, so we hope that this 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 volume, which is obviously. Um, is based on a workshop that we held at uh, the 10th Annual Gulf Research Meeting at the University of Cambridge um, <clears throat> in July uh, 2019. You know, we hope that this, it sort of is going to help us reach the sort of a, a better and more balanced understanding of the contemporary processes of policy making and governance in Saudi Arabia. Of course, as you said, Aisha, as related to Vision 2030, and very importantly, the National Transformation Plan. Neil, do you want to come in there? Sure, thank you, Mark, I will. And just to echo Mark's thanks, Aisha, 
um, to, for, for hosting us today. It's, it's, it's a real pleasure to be able to sort of discuss the facets, facets of the book. I mean, Mark has really sort of mapped out where our kind of, you know, I, I guess our key interests in the book are. And something I would just add is that given that way back in history, when I, when I, when I started looking at Saudi Arabia, it was actually quite difficult to move in and out of the kingdom. Um, and um, when I would do so, uh, it was always quite difficult to sort of set up appointments and set up meetings. Um, there's just been a massive tra you know, transformation in that, in that space. So sort of external academics to the kingdom, of, of obviously of, of which I am, um, you know, we've been able to sort of go back and forth to the kingdom very, very easily and begin to sort of move away from, you know, speculating about succession where we, all, we would all obsess or about those kind of high politics as, as, as Mark has, you know, determined it. And we can actually sort of now get there and look at the sort of you know, the nitty gritty. We can lift up the bonnet on the car and say, this is how things work or this is how things don't work and just really better understand that. And I think that's, you know, that that's, that's, it's great fun sort of thinking about succession and what that is, but actually looking, looking at how, you know, politics works at a very local level or working, looking at how governance works in different sectors allows us to really sort of much better understand how, how things function. So I think the book kind of has sort of moves into that space and, and something we've also, you know, we've also tried to do as well. And myself being a sort of, you know, a Western based academic, is, is sort of um, being a, this wonderful thing of, of being able to have people who are living and working in Saudi and having Saudis contribute to the book and being, being very much a driver of that. Uh, and again, that's a sort of relatively, for us at least, that's a relatively new thing. So, so you know, we really wanna get to better understand you know, the basics. I mean, I was just thinking as Mark was talking, you know, if we if we just sort of look at the UK and we just look at you know look at Boris, that doesn't give us a really very good idea of how things are operating in Newcastle or in Scotland at a sort of local municipal level. And that's really what, what what's much more interesting than than the theatre of Boris and all of those kind of elements. And I and I think to to a large extent that's what the book is trying to address: get much much deeper into understanding how things function. And Aisha, in terms of, uh, of your second question, which sort of leads on from what Neil was just saying there, um, you know, the major aspects of transformation the kingdom has witnessed since the launch of Vision 2030. Um, I think something that's very often missed outside the kingdom, um, but something that those of us who you know, live here permanently see every single day is the way that the vision has changed the way has changed mentalities, has changed the way that people think about their lives, about, think about their futures, think, think about opportunities and what have you. Um, and, and that has been, you know, enormous. Uh, and, and the changes have been so, so, so wide ranging. And of course, we've, you know, we've seen, we've seen the way that the labour market looks now and how, the, how different that is with the numbers of of women going into work and the younger numbers of young Saudis who are now in employment. We've seen the huge social changes that have taken place right across the kingdom. Um, you know, young people, especially young men, for example, they now have places to go, they have things to do. Um, you know, there's entertainment and what have you. Uh, I was in Taif last week um, and there's sort of a whole range of sort of new areas that have been built with 
coffee shops that are actually run by young Saudis with young Saudi waiters and waitresses, you know, and I mean, I mean, just massive, massive changes and, and, um, and, and very positive. So the way that these sort of mentalities have changed is extraordinary. And you do see now that there is this optimism, <clears throat> there is this sort of drive, um, there's what I call a sort of the Riyadh vibe now, um, you know, I remember living back in Riyadh, you know, many years ago, and, you know, even residents of Riyadh who love Riyadh used to talk about it being the most boring city in the world, you know, and everybody would leave Riyadh as soon as they possibly could to go whether to Shakia or to Jeddah or to Dubai or Bahrain. And now it's completely the opposite. Everybody's coming to Riyadh, you know, for, so it, it's a massive, massive, massive change. Um, you know, are there bumps in the road ahead? Are there challenges? Of course there are. Uh, and most definitely, and I'm sure we're going to get into some of those in more detail as we as we have this discussion. But I think, you know, I, I think that, you know, you can talk about the sort of the tangible things that we can see change, whether they, you know, whether there's been success here in this sector or that sector. But I think for me, what is really important is these sort of intangible sort of changes to sort of mentalities, intangible changes to sort of the way people now think about their futures and what have you. So to give an example, I was, um, um, as you mentioned, I used to teach at King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals, and I was out with some of my students not that long ago who I taught in 2013, but who now all work in Riyadh, you know, and they were saying to me, they said, well, if you, you know, if you remember when you taught us, um, our futures were very sort of determined. It was a case of, you know, graduate, join a Ramco, get married, retire, die. You know, and, and, and that's a joke, but that's actually very true because now when you talk to young people here, the opportunities are, uh, there are so many more opportunities. There are so, there's so much more sense of what is, is possible now as well. Neil? Yeah, I mean, just just to follow up, um, Aisha, when you, you when you asked, you know, almost like for a, you know a scorecard to sort of see how how much progress is being made, um, you know, I went I went back to some of the sort of publications that, that come out from you know from various think tanks, including the King Faisal Center, and to be honest, it's it's, it's quite hard to come up. I mean, there are, there are so many KPIs right across the piece. The transformation that's taking place is is massive. It's multi-dimensional, multi-layered. Um, so you know, I, I came up with a, a very short short list of, of things, which I'm I'm just going to sort of share with you now. They're just you know just a handful. Um, some of it is because the data is just simply not available. And I and I think the best way to sort of characterize what's happening is is is, is looking at aspects of sort of what what you might call sort of enabling the environment for tran transformation or transition. I think those those are probably. Those are the sort of tangible intangibles, if that makes sense. I mean, you can sort of, you, you can know what they are, but you can't really capture the, the effect. Um, so, so I think, I just, I think that, that's critical when we're, when we're thinking about this. And any country that's you know, trying to introduce major reform, um, there are always going to be issues and problems. Uh, I'd struggled to get into work this morning because, you know, we, because we have tube strikes and various things going on. So you know, these, these things are sort of fairly normal. But just, just to list a couple of things, um, you know, one of the targets for you know for, for Vision 2030 is, is to open up the kingdom uh, for business. One, one, one piece was to increase the private sector's contribution from 40 to 65 percent of GDP. That currently sits at 50.5 percent of GDP. So some progress there. 
um, to rise from the current position of 25 to the top 10 countries on the global competitiveness index. There are issues in and around the index. Uh, we won't go into that, but, but you know, there, there are some of those. The kingdom moved up 29 places in the World Bank's ease of doing business index in 2020. However, in the GCI, it deteriorated or it dropped from 29 in 2016 to 39 in 2018. So, you know, it's not a, it's not a linear path there. Um, we, have in, we have issues with indexes anyway, uh, for various, you know, various reasons. Um, the Kingdom wanted to raise, or like the vision wanted to raise its global ranking in the logistics performance index from 49 to 25, and ensure that the Kingdom is a regional leader. In 2018, it was ranked 55. So, you know, not, not necessarily doing so, so well, you know, in that area. I mean, I can sort of list those sort of things, but you know, it's, I'm not sure to what extent it's valuable just to simply have a scorecard and then we can come up with an overall kind of percentage. But there are just a couple of other things I would um, sort of allude to perhaps. And, the, and these are sort of, I would call the environmental changes. Um, you know, in, in December, 2018, the, the education minister, and this is something that Hannah will talk about more than me, you know, announced that philosophy and critical thinking would be added to the, to the high school curriculum. That's obviously, you know, instrumental, and that's very important to bringing about sort of fundamental change. As Mark's alluded to, um, I mean, you know, cinemas have returned. The plan is to have 600 cinemas. That's obviously contributing to the economy by 2023. I'm not going to bore you with any more of these things, but just finally, you know, the government introduced new bankruptcy laws. Those those were uh, those <laughs> were very welcomed. Um, it's instituted a program of privatization, and you know has has effectively announced the launch of commercial commercial courts. I mean, this is a whole, as I see it, it's a sort of wholesale transformation and change, and that's 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 going to be long, uh, probably difficult, bumpy, as Mark would say. But it, but it seems to be moving in, in the right direction. And I think some, you know, some, some decisions have been made that this is the direction of travel. Um, and whatever the pace, whatever the speed, uh, I think it's, it's moving in that one direction. Thank you. I, I think what we also have to remember, and I think it's very important, is that, that this transition is ongoing. Um, and you know, sometimes it's not always easy to sort of draw definitive conclusions at the moment because of that, because things, you know, because because of the fluidity of the situation, maybe in 10 years, 15 years or something, we can look back and we'll be able to do that. But, uh, you know, if we can't put things into nice, neat little boxes at the moment as much as we might like to, because there is actually an ongoing transition. And I think that's important to note. Aisha? Okay, thank you very much, uh, Mark and Neil, uh, for enlightening us about the importance of low politics uh, versus the high politics and uh, that we need to really dig deep and understand what is going on on the ground. And my take from what you have see, uh, said actually that the, the kingdom is progressing in, uh, you know, achieving the objectives and the, as Mark, you said, the transformation is ongoing. And uh, with that also, uh, now I would like, um, you know, um, and also like we mentioned that it is multidimensional and, you know, renewable energy uh, and the decarbonization has been also uh, made an integral uh, part of the vision 2030. 
most recently, Saudi Arabia announced that it will commit to a net zero target by 2060, and also have uh, announced uh, that it will achieve 50% uh, of or will generate 50% of electricity from renewable resources by 2030. Uh, we have Jessica Abed who uh, actually wrote uh, a chapter on, and uh, Jessica, I read your chapter and you painted out the governance and the uh, domestic policy making uh, of the renewable energy uh, sector in the kingdom very nicely. Um, I would like uh, to give you the floor now uh, to, you know, uh, expand more on what the kingdom has done so far uh, in the renewable energy sector. Thank you, Aisha. I'm going to start by saying why this chapter matters in the entire governance uh, of Saudi Arabia. So we know that uh, for to go to to go into a journey of energy transition, we need a lot of investments and a lot of money. So expect economies that have excess revenues to have a needs sort of, of implementation of renewable energy and energy transition. Yet when we look into the experience of most hydrocarbon rich economies, we find that they actually struggle with sustainable development, they struggle with renewable energy, with energy diversification and so. Um, and then we see that there's a direct correlation between sustainable development goals and renewable energy and the energy transition in general and good governance. Um, so when we look into also the governance of the oil industry in Saudi Arabia versus the renewable energy industry, we see quite many differences. Um, the oil industry is kind of heavily dominated, is dominated by uh, Saudi Aramco, uh, but we see in renewable energy, there's endorsing of public auctions, uh, more promotion of public-private partnership, private sector engagement, and kind of creating an open market environment. Yet this doesn't say that this is it, the governance is there, there are challenges ahead, but we see divergence uh, between the two industries. Uh, and then so to get into why it matters to go into economic and energy diversification for somewhere like Saudi Arabia that has sits on the throne uh, of oil. Uh, so the, the need for economic diversification, I think, is obvious because the Saudi economy is heavily reliant on oil exports, which means it's also dependent on the fluctuations and volatility of oil prices and the oil market. And when we look into the power sector, we see the obvious need for energy diversification, and that is to free uh, the growing need for, for fuel, for domestic use, for export. Um, so when we look into the electricity consumption, it has been increasing at an unsustainable and significant rate. Uh, that's driven by the growth in population, climate change, and temperature, which is increasing the need uh, for cooling demand, for air conditioner and therefore cooling demand. And there are the fossil fuel and electricity subsidies which are leading to wasteful consumption. And so this is increasing at a very high rate, the electricity consumption. If we look into the data between the year 2005 and 2016, uh, the electricity demand was growing at 6% uh, 
on average annually. This has dropped past 2017, and now we're seeing a growth of 1.5 to 2%. So there has been a massive shift uh, and energy efficiency measures, especially in air conditioners and in cooling. But there's still so much need to freeze this uh, oil, especially also when we look into the energy mix that there's a heavy reliance on gas, growing reliance on gas. Uh, and the investments for gas infrastructure and for gas production are massive. And so the, the, the need for renewable energy is also very obvious. Um, and there is a significant renewable energy potential through the geographic location of Saudi Arabia gives it a huge reserves of uh, renewable and non-renewable resources. It has tremendous petroleum reserves, but it also has high solar and wind energy potential. And now we get to the governance bit. Uh, there has been a lot of action in the renewable energy sphere, yet there we've seen inconsistent renewable energy plans. So there has been many updates on the renewable energy targets, the latest being what you mentioned, 50% of power generation from renewable energy. Uh, renewable energy procurement trends have encouraged in a way auctions uh, uh, and private sector participation by being tender. Uh, but there's also still a high risk that this is going to be dominated by a small number of players. Um, we, we fear about competition competition between the oil industry and the renewable energy market. But here I also have to highlight that between from the time I started writing this chapter until the last edit, uh, when, when it was published, there has been massive actions in the renewable energy sphere, which which was is a nightmare from another side because you kind of have to rewrite your chapter within a few days. But it's also great for Saudi Arabia. In that period of time, I think it was in March and April last year, uh, we've seen the award. So I started from a point that there have been massive delays in renewable energy award. And then a year later, we get to a point where there have been massive awards of uh, renewable energy projects through REPDO2, REPDO3 announcement, Sudair as being one of the largest uh, PV farms in the world, 1.5 gigawatt was also awarded. We've seen a decentralized renewable energy law. Although it has some challenges, it might need amendment in terms of size, but we've seen more promotion. We're seeing more promotion of decentralized renewable energy. So a lot of action has happened last year and it's still happening now, despite the fact that oil prices are high. So also when we look into other economies, hydrocarbon rich economies, when oil prices are high, uh, they have massive revenues to invest in renewable energy. However, the political will drops because they also have all this revenues from oil. It feels like oil is going to last forever. So that's the case for Russia and some other countries. But in Saudi Arabia, we're witnessing that despite the fact that oils are in the high in the three digits, we're still seeing political determination for renewable energy. So that doesn't that, that doesn't mean that it's going to be clear skies and sunny road ahead. There are so many challenges to overcome Saudi Arabia and other countries, of course, but we're seeing more emphasis on renewable energy portfolio. Okay, thank you very much, Jessica. I'll come back to you and uh, regarding the challenges ahead, uh, 
I think it would be good also to expand on that further, especially as you mentioned, there's the progress and there's the political will is um, at least is there at the moment and that there is a diversity between, uh, it is not uh, necessarily dominated by the uh, uh, oil industry at the moment, but there is a diversity of the entities involved. So I'll come back to you later, but now I would like to move uh, to Hannah. Hannah, um, yes, um, so, Hannah, you, um, in your chapter, you know, uh, you uh, tackled and you speak this book directly uh, about the largest segment of the society in Saudi Arabia, the youth who are uh, accounting for more than 60% uh, of the population um, and uh, among uh, whom like the, un um, the unemployment rate is around 27%. Um, so, the Saudi Vision 2030 uh, acknowledged that the, the, the importance of the young uh, Saudis in, you know, in, in being involved in the economic transformation and uh, the importance uh, you know, of em uh, empowering them so they can, we can you know, also enhance the uh, economic pr productivity in the kingdom. And in, the, in your chapter, you focused on the, um, the role of the vocational uh, education and training. And the division uh, has put a target to increase the uh, enrollment of young uh, Saudi uh, in, in vocational education and training nine falls by 2020. Now we are in 2022. And uh, yes, I, I realized like you also spoke and have done interviews with the youth uh, uh, in the kingdom. So um, uh, I would like uh, to uh, ask you if you can please uh, enlighten us on the what the kingdom has done so far to improve the environment for the vocational education and training. And then if you can also shed a light on what the young people have said to you uh, when you interviewed them. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much for organizing this and to Neil and Mark for making the book happen. Um, it's been quite some time since I did that research and since I did those interviews. Um, and actually it was very early days of the vision when I conducted the interview. So not a lot of the students at the time had really talked about um, the vision. It, it kind of, it sometimes was discussed, especially when I was speaking to the older students who were already in vocational training. Uh, but in general, I think there's definitely been progress made on paper. So kind of like thinking about what Neil was saying in terms of um, being wary of numbers and indexes, uh, indices, I think it's the numbers look great. And I think a lot has definitely changed. There's been incredible progress. So, I mean, I think there was... Um, the, the last report that was issued by the TVTC, so the Technical Vocational uh, Training Corporation in 2020, uh, highlighted that now 22.7% of high school graduates uh, enrolled in um, TVET in 2020 in, in technical vocational education and training, um, which was a huge win for them because the target was actually set at 12%. Um, and there still is a high attrition rate. There always has been, but it looks like it's quite a bit lower. So at some point when I was writing uh, about this in 20, um, kind of 18, 19, it was up to 65%, but there wasn't really official numbers. This it has been reported 
reported that the attrition rate was only 14.9% this uh, in, in 2020. Um, there is an expansion of strategic partnerships to offer training to young people, so not just within the um, state-owned vocational training centers or the semi-state-owned vocational training centers, but also new strategic partnerships uh, with different international organizations. Um, and then across the different types of TVET training certification program, including language courses, uh, you had 50,000 graduates in 2020, and you had 263,288 enrolled in the institutes. Um, and you had quite a few new students enrolling as well, which was quite different um, from when I did the research again. Um, you know, the, the target really was uh, to increase it kind of from a very low rate uh, to a higher one. I do think that when we look at education in general, technical vocational education in Saudi um, and, and all of these things, we need to be very um, aware of kind of what the definitions are. So TVET in Saudi looks different to TVET in other countries. So when we look at the numbers of people going into vocational training in countries in Europe, such as Germany and Switzerland, where there's a you know long history of going into this type of training, um, they'll look different because people start vocational training much earlier in their kind of educational journey in those countries. And there's also a long history of kind of families um, continuing on with different crafts. Uh, however, within the kingdom, it's more of an option between a post-secondary option. So when you graduate high school or, or secondary school, you then choose, do I go into vocational or do I go into academic? And there's been a lot of changes in that space, I think, um, as well, because I think that there's just uh, a different outlook on what skills are valuable in the marketplace because of economic changes. So I think that in the past, you know, you, you might have had everybody aspiring, and this is what most of the young people that I spoke to um, would say, aspiring to be doctors, engineers, uh, potentially work in military. But now where the opportunities are, are more in creative sectors, scholarship opportunities are in the creative sectors. So your aspiration might now be to be a chef uh, or to be a, um, or a musician. And I think that just that center of social status and prestige in terms of what your vocation or your job or your your profession will be has shifted a bit not fundamentally but there are definitely shifts um, and it's interesting because while I was doing my research, there was the vision, but there was no education program. It was kind of, there was a placeholder for it. The human capability development program wasn't launched until September of 2021. Um, and in that, the challenges that I highlighted in my research and in this chapter were still the challenges that we were talking about. So despite having so much progress, uh, we still have those same challenges. So, I mean, I can even um, think about the, the narratives that I heard from the young people, I kind of divided it into people that looked at vocational training as a dead end or as a career stopper, but some look at it as a, you know, a, um, an alternative and a, and a welcome alternative. Uh, I think we still see that those are the way people view pathways. Uh, maybe now those are shifting. So you do have more people going into this. So you have definitely a lowering of those barriers into going into vocational training, but also a redefinition of what vocational training means. So yesterday I was looking at the announcement of training 100,000 people in Saudi Arabia in the tourism industry. Well, that training wasn't available before. You know, 
Can we classify it as vocational training? Where is it happening? These are all kind of fluid terms that are shifting. And I think it's very interesting to see those shifts. What I think hasn't changed is the way we think about students as um, kind of uh, vessels to put information into. And for me, uh, kind of looking at this through kind of sociological lenses, that I think we're separating the skills we need from the young people that we need to train. And I, I don't think that that's changed at all. And within the human capabilities program, um, there's a lot of talking about how to uh, help students make the right decision um, and help students kind of uh, through these pathways uh, that lead to the jobs that we need or the professions that we need. And I do think that, you know, we, we can probably do more justice to these young people by thinking about what their needs are and their life journeys as well, instead of just kind of thinking about uh, what economic um, outputs uh, we need them to produce for us. Uh, so again, there's so much progress that has been made, but I think that the education space is still an area where there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And the human capabilities program actually really outlines that very clearly. So maybe when I wrote this, there wasn't really a clear roadmap. There is one. It's, um, it's much kind of more specific in terms of how and who, uh, how we're going to do these things and who is responsible. So from a governance perspective, really divvying up the responsibility of education development between Ministry of uh, Education, the Technical Vocational Training Corporation, as well as ETEC, which is the evaluation commission that looks at the quality of education. So there's been a, a, a clearer, uh, kind of approach to doing this and lots of changes. Um, but I still think that there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of thinking about what the students need. Wonderful. Thank you very much, Hannah. I'll come back to you also uh, at the end. Also, uh, it, it's always like uh, uh, important uh, when we talk about challenges, we also uh, talk about the solutions. So I would really like to hear from you about what are the solutions and what the movements that can be introduced uh, later on. Um, now the floor is open for the uh, questions uh, from the audience. Uh, but since uh, I don't have any questions at the moment, uh, I, I'm going to build up on uh, what Mark said uh, on the um, joke that one of uh, your students has said that I graduate, go to Aramco, have a family, and that's it. Um, I think here that is like, that is really interesting because it speaks directly to the state society relation where the young people have expectation from the government to provide us with the job and then also with the housing and so on and so forth. Um, I would like to pose the question to you uh, on, uh, do you think that the, the implementation of the, uh, the Saudi Vision 2030 uh, have made a departure from this uh, uh, conventional uh, uh, social contract uh, uh, of an economy? Uh, and what are the implications on the, uh, uh, the expectations of the young Saudis? Um, thank you, Aisha. I mean, I, I don't think it was just Vision 2030. I mean, I, I mean, I think you have to go back before that. I mean, I think the what happened in 2014 when the oil price crashed and that had sort of a huge impact on, on the labour market and had a huge, a huge impact on, on life in the kingdom. And in some ways that 
you know, the vision was also a response to what, what sort of happened with that. And I think there were other factors as well. The fact that, you, you know, you have an increasingly, you know, well-educated population. Um, the 2009 sort of social media explosion as well. So I think if you sort of, you know, you, it, it was sort of all of those sort of converged together, if you like. And that obviously led to, you know, a lot of young people sort of rethinking, if you like, their their place in society or what they could contribute or what they wanted or how they saw their futures. Um, and I and I think that was that was that was very interesting because it, it, it I saw this you know on a daily basis with with my students how they were you know how their that how their way of sort of seeing their individual identities was also changing because of all of this um, and you know you know Hannah and both Hannah and sort of Jessica sort of raised the point about you know how you know writing something like this for a book and yet it's all changing very very quickly and that that's something that's very very true um but i th i think that you know going back to your points you just said about sort of you know sort of um um you know sort of graduating and then having a family and that's it i i think you know in many ways a lot of that also had to do because there wasn't really any sort of awareness of sort of other options uh things were very limited in terms of what you could do what you couldn't do what your family expected you to do and what have you and i think that 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 suddenly you know there became sort of an awareness across you know amongst lots of younger Saudis that there are other options that there are other possibilities that they don't just have to sort of follow those sort of sort of well-trodden tracks um and that um you know that, that happened very 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 quickly um I remember when I was at KFUPM um you know my students who were mainly engineering students and some business students uh, although there's a lot of business students now but in those days sort of just after the vision they were they were a minority but you know suddenly when the consultancy jobs happened for the very first time um and you know students coming to me and wondering whether they could apply for for jobs with some of the big consultancy firms in Riyadh, even though they were engineering students, uh, which actually happened and, that, and they did do that. So, you know, and that was all very, very, very new. Um, and, and these opportunities sort of came, it seemed almost from nowhere. So I think there was, you know, you also have to be aware of sort of the awareness of what was possible um, and the awareness of actually what's, what's available. And that's, um, that's constituted a really big change too. I think you're muted. Thank you, Hannah. So thank you very much, Mark. Um, I also would like to uh, open the floor to Neil, if you would like to, uh, or Hannah or Jessica, if you would like to comment. Uh, I, I'd love to comment on Mark's um, <laughs> uh, take. And I completely, I mean, I think that Mark, obviously in, in working with young students for so long and young men for so long, um, has an incredible insight as to, you know, kind of what the sentiments uh, were and how they've evolved. Um, I will say that I think that kind of that narrative of, you know, getting your engineering degree, working in Aramco, and then having kids and dying, 
is actually not that far off from what a lot of young people actually want to do. And for both young men and young women, I think there's these traditional kind of pathways. And I think that pushing too hard against what these kind of family values are. And I know that Mark agrees with me, we've had these conversations before, but I think that pushing up against them is a little bit also, um, it, it might be discounting what they want. So we, we definitely want to create those opportunities. And I think in terms of what solutions are, uh, is thinking about those flexible pathways of being able to make these choices. And I think th that is so much more available to young people. Um, so having this kind of um, traditional pathway where you want to follow it is comforting for a lot of people, is easier for a lot of people. And I don't think a lot of people want to push against some of those expectations, but I do think that they're, they do want space to make more choice. So that you might be expected to go to university, but what you choose to study in university now is a little bit more flexible because society views those choices slightly differently because now there's more opportunities in the labor market in other areas. I think the same thing with marriage. You do want to get married, but maybe not right away or maybe on your own timeline and maybe to somebody that your family wasn't necessarily happy with. And so those choices, again, potentially now this opportunity to meet more people in the workplace is changing. And so you're going to have more of these kind of non-traditional approaches to meeting people getting married. And I think that there's probably a, going to be more of a struggle in those types of social areas, very, very social areas, unless of, uh, against the ones that are related to education and work. And I think despite that, because of the way everything is shifting, there's going to be more choice. And that's ideally what you would like for young people. No, absolutely. I mean, I, th I, I think that whole, uh, that whole, point about choice and opportunities is, is so very, very important. Um, choices and opportunities that just really weren't there before or be because people actually didn't even have awareness uh, of those choices and opportunities. I mean, Hannah and I have you know, worked and, and are working on a lot of projects related to this. Uh, and one of the issues that, that, that we've both talked about frequently and talking about now with various projects we're working on you know is is the fact that the, the lack of career education for example the lack you know the lack of, of of actually educating young people as to what is available what is possible and what sectors now exist because of the vision that didn't exist i mean hannah's obviously just mentioned about the you know the tourism and what have you and indeed the sectors that don't exist now but are going to exist in the future you know, so it's not just about educating people for or educating young Saudis to go into jobs that exist now, but educating young Saudis to go into those jobs that will exist, um, you know, in, in, in the decades to come, which I also think is very important. Aisha? Well, thank you very much, Mark and Hannah. Uh, I can see that the questions from the audience are coming in. Uh, we have uh, one question from Hatun al Farsi. Thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, Hatun's question is, uh, uh, is on is asking the, the panelists or the speakers on how the good governance rules were implemented in the policies of the vision. She is clarifying uh, a bit more how firm the good governance rules were truly applied. I think her question is about 
um, are we seeing a good governance uh, in the kingdom? Anyone would like to come in? I can, I can come in. Uh, so when, when governance is a broad term and it hasn't been, it has different meanings and it hasn't been clearly defined, but I can answer that for the energy sector. So uh, that looks into how we're doing the procurement, how we're doing regulations, regulations that are in place, actions, plans, role of institutes and all of that. And we're seeing an improved governance in this regard in the renewable energy sphere. So we're seeing more regulations. We have the regulation uh, for distributed renewable energy. I was gonna address the, the other regulations needed in the challenges ahead that we need a solid renewable energy law. And so in the procurements, it's open tenders and auctioning, which uh, companies can apply for pre-qualification and sub submit a bid. Uh, and an offer to actually get the project. Uh, we're seeing in terms of build, uh, building more investor confidence and building more citizens' confidence. Uh, so that's definitely an, an improved governance in a way. Thank you very much, uh, Jessica. Um, I, I have uh, another question from Asif, and it is, sorry? I think Neil wanted to ask something. Sorry, could, could I just come come in on that on that point? If if we just if we park the idea of good governance as as, as you know the World Bank definition, and we just look at governance um, as a whole, something that Mark and I have looked at separately is is this idea. I think since since Vision Twenty Thirty has come into being, that you know a new generation or a younger generation of, of leaders have been selected and put in and put in positions um, and have been somewhat empowered to push through decisions. And, we, and we've seen that in the creation of hybrid institutions that are given specific tasks. And, and in some ways, I'm, I'm just putting aside the word good aside. In some ways that's, that's been enormously beneficial because it means you can just sort of railroad through bureaucratic process or circumvent, uh, you know, bureaucratic blockages, which would typically, you know, prevent or frustrate policy and implementation. But at the same time, there's there's a risk or a challenge that that comes from that, and that's unless you have you know policies, procedures, and processes in place, then things can can go awry, or you know, the train can come off the tracks. And I, I would say in, in, in a number of situations, you know, we, 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 we can see where bureaucratic processes have been pushed aside, pushed aside because there needs to be quick implementation and progress. Um, but but the, the challenges lay ahead, basically. You know, if, if, if decision-making rests, and I'm talking within institutions, if it rests in the hands of a few that can simply just kind of, you know, by, bypass some bureaucracy, then, then it risks if, if either they, they leave that position or they make bad decisions, you know, there are no kind of mechanisms to, to rectify it. So, so again, good, let's leave good governance aside, but, but the, this is how I would say some of the governance challenges are, are kind of emerging. Can I add to that a little Thank bit? Thank you very much. Yeah, please, Hannah. 
Um, so I, I think another thing to maybe think about as well is um, just, again, I think there is that speed of change and therefore you do have people being held accountable uh, to, to deliver quickly. And that wasn't necessarily happening in the past. You had very stagnant institutions in the past that might not be delivering anything. And so with the accountability, which is part of good governance, uh, you do have kind of basically this evaluation of whether or not the right people are in the right positions. And so you have change happening in these places. And sometimes it needs to happen yesterday, which makes it difficult to do it well, as Neil was saying. But I do think that that's a really uh, kind of a different uh, way of doing things is having the accountability. And one other thing is, I know that it might not work as well as it needs to yet, but there are these policies, um, and I can't remember exactly what it's called, but the the uh, within the vision realization programs, there's one that is supposed to be a pan uh, vision, um, you know, kind of realization uh, monitoring uh, approach. So within every ministry, there is a an entity that is responsible for making sure that there is collaboration with other entities that are working on these things. So there's these, you know, these other kind of um, committees that are formed uh, for the Ministry of Tourism, for instance, you have the um, the Tourism Council, and there are representatives for all of the ministries on that council, and they are supposed to anything that is a little bit beyond what one minister should be making a decision on gets escalated to the council and discussed amongst the ministries. So again, I do think that this is an interesting development from what's happened in the past. So maybe slightly less silos and more discussions happening across uh, the different ministries. Yes, definitely. And you also have um, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, definitely. Just to follow on what Hannah and Neil were saying there. And what you have to remember as well is that you also have, you know, the sort of the huge numbers of scholarship students who have fed into the system um, in the last few years and what have you, who, who also have understandings about what governance means and have an understanding about accountability and transparency and best practices and things like this because they've been educated as such so this is this this is this is as well as had sort of an impact on this definitely thank you very much mark uh, and also uh, on your point where the the students like the young are now educated and then they also the vision actually um book the education uh, as an integral part and we have seen that there are many scholarships that have been uh, you know offered for the Saudi citizens to go and study abroad I do have a question on this uh, from Asif uh, who is uh, actually asking a question uh, and pointing out the question to Hannah in terms of retaining uh, the local talent uh, what steps uh, have been taken by Saudi Arabia in terms of making the social life of the professionals uh, attractive and livable uh, as per the Western world? Um, um, okay, so interesting question. Um, I think there's, I mean, from a social point of view and what's being done to attract people, social transformation has been massive. It's the one area you 
you cannot actually argue with um, in terms of opportunities to have fun. Uh, you know, we have almost a ministry of fun. You have the Entertainment Commission doing so much um, and, and, and offering actually, especially if you're talking about professionals, people, all sorts of different um, opportunities to go to concerts, to go uh, to the cinema, to attend festivals, to attend, you know, all sorts of different types of festivals. So if you're not into the music, it could be a food festival, it could be a cultural festival. You have this explosion of culture and creativity that is happening, uh, galleries, all of that. So there might be a higher price point for some people, but even without that higher price point, there are other opportunities. So I think a lot is being done in terms of entertainment and fun and what to do to, to attract people if they want to experience the Western kind of um, thing that they might have enjoyed if they were away on scholarship. But I, I also think that that there's a lot of, of other things that are being done. I mean, from an economic point of view, I think that um, there's still a lot of unemployment. There are still struggles to get everybody working in jobs that they want and jobs that they feel like they're, um, you know, giving uh uh, that, that are mean, meaningful to them. However, uh, there are so many efforts that are being made to really kind of find new opportunities and new outlets and support for small and medium enterprises, uh, training opportunities to upskill, uh, training opportunities to um, specialize. There's a little bit more of a life co course approach to education. So you can continue to learn um, and continue to uh, find new opportunities. Um, I, I don't think that we have the same crisis as other countries do in terms of a brain drain and people not going back. Actually, I feel like there are so many opportunities now, especially for people who go abroad, that they want to come back and be part of the change and the transformation. Um, it, it might be more people in the more rural parts of the country, and maybe Mark can speak to this a bit more, that are struggling to find that meaningful work, that are, are maybe not looking for a Western uh, form of, of entertainment, but are struggling to really actually uh, be part of the vision and this change that's happening mostly in the cities. Thank you very much, Anna. Uh, Mark, uh, would you like to uh, come in since, uh, you know, you yes. are working closely with, you know, young Saudis. Um, so I would like to hear from no. you. Yes, no, following on from what Hannah said there, yeah, we obviously have seen, um, I mean, I spent a lot of time in um, the sort of the regions of the kingdom, as you probably know, and, and it is very different from what you see happening in the, in the sort of the main centres. But then I think we also have to make the point that, you know, there's Riyadh and then there's Riyadh. You know, there are very different types of, of, of there are different parts of the city which with very different sort of atmospheres as well. Um, and of course, we have seen sort of a lot of internal migration from the provinces into the main cities, in particular Riyadh, uh, because of it's perceived that, you know, sort of the majority of opportunities are here. Um, so, you know, in the past, if you took a, a, you know, a taxi in Riyadh or a Karim or an Uber, for example, you know, more likely than not, your driver would be from Riyadh or from areas near Riyadh, if you like, such as Kasim, for example, or Al-Hajj. But, you know, nowadays, you know, 90% of the people you talk to in a Kareem driver are from Najran or Abha or Ara or Jalf or, or Tabuk or what have you. So, and young people, obviously, as well. Um, so that, 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 is, that, is, that is a sort of a, a, big, a big change there. But you do see, I mean, you, you obviously see in the, in the news and in the media, you you know, in terms of the, the sort of the entertainment side of the vision that's highlighted, you know, you see those sort of big high profile, big ticket events 
um, you know, such as Mideast Beast or, or Riyadh Boulevard or what have you. But actually, there are lots of, of sort of smaller things that happened in the regions, a lot of sort of local festivals. Um, I was at a couple in, in, in Jizan province not recently um, that are sort of maybe more sort of, you know, based on sort of local interests or local heritage, or as Hannah has pointed out, sort of, you know, based on local food, cuisine and things like this. Um, but they are actually very inclusive. Um, which I think is very interesting and reflect, you know, sort of the priorities of um, the inhabitants of that particular area. So, I mean, you don't see, so you don't, you know, that doesn't get much attention, um, but that's, you know, that is also happening, which I think is very important. And um, I think, you know, that, that at times when it comes to, um, you know, how, you know, the changes and the vision and what have you, I think, you know, I, I think, that sometimes there's an assumption maybe that some of these changes are based maybe on sort of regional changes or sort of urban rural divide and things like that. But I, increasingly what I see in the research that I'm conducting at the moment, for example, is that actually, you know, there seems to be a lot of this is actually more generational than anything uh, and less say, urban rural, if you like, um, that, that actually sort of between the sort of the generations, which I think is, is interesting. But again, you know, this is, this is quite fluid because it, it's all ongoing. Thank you very much, Mark. I personally, I do have a follow-up question on that, is on, you know, the access to, uh, but I'm gonna ask this later uh, because it's fair to go to the audience questions. Uh, but I do have a question, uh, I would uh, pose it later if we have time between, you know, using the uh, uh, local talent versus the access to the international consultancy companies. Uh, but before that, uh, I do have a question from my colleague uh, in the Middle East Institute, Clement Shea. Uh, Clement have two questions, one for Neil and the other for Jessica. Uh, for Neil, uh, the question is, um, uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia are economic uh, frenemies. Uh, what is your thought uh, in this uh, uh, statement? And um, he's also saying qualitatively, could you expand on how much more Riyadh needs to do uh, to catch up with Abu Dhabi, especially in light of the UAE latest uh, legal reforms? Thank you, thank you for the questions. Sorry, Aisha, could you just repeat the, the, the last part of the, of the question? The, the, uh, the last part, yeah. So. Uh, how can Riyadh catch up uh, with Abu Dhabi, especially in light of the latest uh, legal reforms in the UAE? Oh, I see, yes, great, thank you. Um, I, Frenemies, I think, probably captures it quite, 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 quite beautifully. I think that's, <laughs> um, I mean, I think, you know, we, we, we've seen, we've seen the relation go, you know, pass through various contours o o over time and, uh, more recently, over the past eighteen months, we've 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 seen how that the relationship has sort of played out uh, geo, you know, geopolitically, regionally, um, through the kind of uh, OPEC prism. You know, there there are clear there are clear differences there, and I and, and I doubt that um, competition will 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 subside. I mean, there there's a there's an alignment of interests on 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 certain issues, and I think. Um, as with any neighboring states, 
you know, there, there are, yeah, there, there, there are points of commonality and shared interests and there are points of, of, of contention. And I, I, I don't see why, why that would change. Um, I mean, the UAE in a way has, you know, had, a, had sort of managed to steal ahead of, of Saudi Arabia. I would say it's probably got a good, if, if not more, sort of 20 years. So, so you know, society is really, um, can, you know, trying trying to catch up, but but as we've sort of said throughout this this conversation, I mean, it really is moving at speed and 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 at pace. And the sort of declaration that you know, large companies or corporates are going to have to set up uh, their regional headquarters in Riyadh was really you know a sort of I guess a, a red flag to, um, to 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 Abu Dhabi and the and the Emirates. Um, and from what I see. Uh, quite a large number of companies are in the process of making that shift and, and, and making that decision. And in my, my own conversation with some fairly large, very large, I should say, um, businesses, um, they've, they've now sort of changed their position on, on the kingdom in terms of it was always seen in the past as a hardship posting. Whereas now it's not seen that as at all, uh, sort of alluding to some of the some of the developments um, that that Hannah had mentioned. I, I liked her characterization of the Ministry of Fun. I thought that was really interesting, and 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 I think I mean I think you know I mean I think Riyadh or, or Saudi is seen as a, as a very different proposition. Um, what you know what 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 can Riyadh do? I mean I think it's it's or what can the kingdom do? I think it's just more of the same. I think it's just. You know, making that making that business environment and enabling the business environment, making it much more cooperative and friendly. I mean, I think the UAE, Dubai, especially, will will always be a few years ahead. Will always will always uh, try to leverage its kind of unique position as the entrepot, you know, in in the region. But 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 it knows the big neighbor next door is really kind of is is catching up, and that's you know that's that's not gonna, that's not going to change. Uh, I think, as Mark said, probably. I mean, when I when I first went to Riyadh was, and I lived there. Uh, well, I lived in Jeddah, but that was, you know, that that was some years ago. People did want to get out of Riyadh, uh, and they were they were hopping over to Dubai or Bahrain. But 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 I think that the flow of traffic is is really quite different. And as you know, as 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 the tourist sector develops, um, you know, there is some skepticism around that. But that but that certainly seems to be making significant progress. Um, I mean, I think the kingdom is going to be. A massive, you know, a massive draw, and 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 the smaller states and, and the region are going to really have to sort of, you know, keep finding their USP and leveraging that to, to to the best of their ability. So I don't see any major change coming along, I, but I do see Saudi as the as the big neighbor, just kind of, you know, catching up. Um, it was lumber. It was <laughs> it was a good twenty years behind, but it's really moving at pace at the moment. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, uh, Neil, so I agree with you. Uh, being in the Gulf, I think uh, the the uh, the amount of the flow for, for the people uh, between Saudi and Dubai is 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 really changing at the moment. And as Mark said, like uh, that is because you know people want to stay in Riyadh now. Um, so with that, uh, on the same note, on the competition note, uh, the question now is for you, Jessica, and it's also from Clement Shane. Uh, Clement asks, um, do you also see a competition between Saudi Arabia uh, and the UAE in the domain of the clean energy transition and the renewables, knowing that the UAE is hosting the COP28 uh, next year? 
that's one good competition to have in the region uh, to start with. Uh, so we see actually common trends uh, between the UAE and Saudi Arabia and the renewable energy sphere, uh, starting with the mega projects, the scale of the projects. So we, we see Sudan and Saudi Arabia, uh, 1.5 gigawatt and Al Dafra two gigawatt uh, in the UAE solar sites, the largest single sites of solar systems. There's a, there are these common trends in the size of the projects, and they have common trends in championing renewable energy giants. Uh, so we see aqua power in renewable uh, in the renewable energy sphere that's backed by uh, PIF and other Saudis uh, investors in in Saudi Arabia that has now a portfolio in a dozen countries. We see the same with Mosdad in the UAE. Uh, building these renewable energy champions. Uh, it's kind of a competition in terms of uh, meeting faster the renewable energy targets, the climate commitments, and who's going to, to be the leader in climate uh, in the region. But that's, that's really a good, a good competition. We'd like to see more interventions and measures in the climate sphere in general. Uh, I agree with you, uh, Jessica. We need competition, uh, but a healthy competition. Um, thank you very much. Um, uh, now I don't, yeah, I don't have uh, more questions, uh, but uh, uh, I personally, I do have a follow-up question. Uh, and I saw you, Hannah, smiling. I didn't know if uh, you wanted also. No, okay. So, okay, it's also for you, Hannah. Um, you know, um, the, the economic diversification also, uh, doesn't happen without, you know, uh, enabling the innovation. Uh, and, uh, you know, the division also spoke about the importance of enabling knowledge-based economy. And uh, actually, uh, the kingdom uh, has, uh, has done a lot, uh, actually, to, to enable the, the business environment, and uh, especially for the small, medium uh, enterprises. Actually, it put... Um, a target to increase the contribution of small medium enterprises in the GDP from 20% to 35% by 2030. Um, and actually from your work, you, uh, you, you um, identified that uh, the kingdom has done a lot to create the business uh, infrastructure and the regulatory uh, frameworks that are necessary to enable small medium enterprises. But uh, again, uh, even with that, we don't see enough innovation uh, or innovative businesses are taking uh, place in the kingdom. Uh, do you think that the, uh, this, there is a gap between the speed uh, of the, what the government is doing and for the young people to catch up of, uh, of what the government is uh, actually um, doing? And Thank you. Yeah, maybe the, the, the other part of the question um, is, uh, uh, why we don't see innovative, innovative businesses in the kingdom? Yeah, thank you. I don't know that it's necessarily a gap between, you know, what the government is doing and whether or not youth can catch up or, or keep keep pace. Um, I, I think that there's there's capital that is concentrated in certain parts of the economy in certain sectors. Uh, so if you want to innovate in 
um, technology, then there is money that's going to support your SME. But if you're innovating in other areas, then you're probably not going to see as much um, capital. So the space of venture is really, it's a, it's a buzzword. People are really into it in the kingdom right now. Everybody's trying to be a venture capitalist. Um, and, and kind of find the next unicorn. And I think that one of the major issues is people are actually kind of reinventing the wheel, as you mentioned, the innovation um, uh, side of it is quite low and that the measurement, um, you know, of, of how different or, or, or cutting edge these new um, companies are is, it speaks for volumes, right? There isn't a lot happening. But I do think that goes back to the education system. Again, we are telling people kind of what to do. I, there are more opportunities now to make different choices, but for the generation now that is coming up to trying to get into, you know, maybe starting their own company because they can't find a job. So one of the big problems is unemployment. So let's open up this SME space. Let's try and deregulate. Let's get people starting their own companies. But really that's, you know, a band-aid for the unemployment and that's the small growth. And the growth is a product of the fact that we're expecting the education system to produce people that are going to do very specific things in the economy when that doesn't necessarily happen. Like I don't see a linear um, connection between investing in education and uh, economic growth. Uh, but a lot of people do argue for that. I I think that you need to invest in kind of education space and teaching people how to think differently, think outside the box, think critically. Introducing critical thinking as a curriculum is interesting, but it's not going to help young people engage with material. They need to be thinking critically throughout uh, the education journey and from a young age and having access to extracurricular activities and having access to um, problem solving through sport, uh, through music, through uh, other challenges, debate, through, you know, these things that really help people grow and problem solve. And that will turn into innovation and problem solving in a meaningful way within the kingdom. And you will have those small companies turning into medium companies and growing and being the next thing. But without focusing really on the education sector and not just you know, what we're teaching, but how we're teaching and why we're teaching and, you know, the, the kind of choice that needs to come with uh, what people do with that knowledge, we're not going to see a lot of the innovation, in my opinion. Thank you very much, Hannah. Um, now, I do have uh, another question from Katun El-Fasi. Uh, I think her question is about, do you think, uh, and this is for all, do you think that, um, the uh, economic transformation or the vision is uh, uh, implemented evenly across the kingdom, or are we seeing uh, the people moving more to Riyadh to find jobs? And do you think that is sustainable uh, in the long term? And I think uh, if I can add also that goes in line, you know, uh, with the, um, uh, the, the building of the media projects in the kingdom, like Neon, the line, uh, do you also think uh, these are, you know, um, helping to progress towards a more sustainable economy in the long term? I think it's just to answer, yeah, I mean, I think it is uneven, but like I said before, I don't think it's just a case of saying, you know, the, the main urban centres, Riyadh, Jeddah, you know, Daman, whatever, and 
that there's differences within those cities, you know, so it's uneven within Riyadh, for example, because Riyadh is an enormous city now, and there are very different parts of Riyadh. So, so, you know, I, I think by the nature of the transition, it's not good, you know, it's impossible for it to be even, but I don't think it's just, it's, I don't think it's as, as straightforward as just as saying that it's, that it's solely, you know, all of Riyadh and the rest of the country, because I think there are very big differences even within, within, within the capital. Um, I mean, you only have to go to certain districts such as Nassim or Sawadi or whatever, Dalad Laban, whatever, and you, you see those differences. So um, it, it, I think the unevenness is, 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 is an intrinsic part of what's happening, but it's, um, as I say, it's, it's not just between the capital and the rest of the country. Mark, can, can, I, can I ask you a follow-on question? Sorry. <laughs> so, so, the, so the natural follow-on is, what, what, what are the consequences of that unevenness? You're, you're better positioned where you are than I am sat in London to sort of answer that. What, what, how do you think those things will sort of you know, play out? I mean, you travel around the kingdom a lot um, and, and carry out research. So maybe you've got some great insights to share. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the consequences obviously are if there's perceptions amongst certain communities that um, they, they don't have access to as many opportunities, shall we say, uh, because of where they're from, because of their, you know, because of their particular background, depending on their constituency. I think that, you know, that there, there is an issue there. Um, and there obviously is an issue if people feel that they are, um, you know, they're forced to maybe migrate into, you know, into one of the one of the main urban centres because maybe of lack of, of employment opportunities or particular type of <coughs> employment opportunities, um, depending on where they come from in the kingdom, uh, and something that they might not necessarily you know, they might not necessarily want to do that. Um, and therefore, you know, say they come to Riyadh, for example, you know, because they have to, you know, because they want that the, the type of job that they want is not available in their hometown or what have you. But then the cost of living in Riyadh is much, much higher, for example, than it would be if they'd stayed in, you know, Abu Elish or somewhere like that. So, yeah, I mean, and that's all very much, you know, that's part of, of this unevenness. And, um, it, you know, in the past, it would be very unusual to hear of people moving from Jeddah, for example, to Riyadh, or people moving from uh, jobs in the oil industry or the petrochemical industry in the eastern province coming to Riyadh to find work. Uh, but that's now something that is actually very common and that you actually hear all the time because so many of the opportunities are Riyadh-based. Um, so that obviously raises questions, you know, about you know, sort of the centralization of a lot of these things in the kingdom uh, and whether or not that's a good thing for the kingdom. Um, you know, are you actually then sort of, are you, are, and also, you know, going to just sort of the sustainability of sort of living in the kingdom. I mean, Jessica was talking about, you know, air conditioning and, and you know, sort of those types of things. And, you know, what happens when you get you know, sort of this enormous amount of people moving into Riyadh and the, the you know, the, I mean, Riyadh is what sort of around 8 million now um, and, and growing uh, all the time, you know, is that actually 
is that sustainable in the long term? I mean, I, I mean, you know, I have I, I have questions about that. I mean, you only have to drive on the highways out of Riyadh, either to the eastern province or to, to Jeddah the other way. And it's just one long line of lorries all the way to either ports on either side with everything being brought you know all the all the goods that are needed everything being brought into the cap into the capital um, and i remember talking to you know when i did research of my first book um you know sort of well but a long time ago now but talking to sort of a, you know somebody then who was 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 discussing you know the the the, the problems of you know sort of you know is it sustainable to have this enormous population here. I don't know. I mean, this is obviously these these are these are questions for the future, but I I think uh, very important ones. Certainly, when it comes to sort of water, electricity, all of these types of things. Thank you very much, Mark. We have less than uh, ten minutes to end this webinar. Um, I would like to ask Jessica uh, one more questions uh, on renewables, given also my background on the uh, renewables and the climate policy and the politics. Um, so Jessica, um, again, back to the uh, renewable energy target, the 50% um, renewable energy target. Uh, you know, now currently, if we look at the electricity generation capacity in the kingdom, it's around 80 um, gigawatts. And the current uh, uh, electricity generated from renewables is, uh, uh, around one gigawatt, uh, I think it's around 700 uh, megawatt. Uh, but now we need like uh, with the 50% uh, uh, renewable energy target, we are heading to something like, you know, 40 gigawatt within eight years. Are you optimistic that, uh, you know, we will uh, achieve that targets on time? Well, considering also the capacity factor of renewable energy, we're going to need a lot more than 40 gigawatt to, to meet the target. And that's coupled with the increase in electricity demand by 2030, and that there's a race across Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries and in the region to add capacity. Um, so that is an ambitious target, considering that 2030 is almost seven years from now. Um, but because it is ambitious, we do hope that if we do get to half of it or more, that's going to be also massive. So we know if we consider the pipeline of projects, of projects that have been awarded and planned and that have raised uh, reached financial close, we have some five gigawatts. But of course, we investors would need more visibility on projects to come, more solid action plans on how the target is going to be reached and a lot of investments are going to be needed, which, which needs investors' confidence as well and solid regulation. And it's going to take a lot of stakeholders to meet this target and different renewable energy models. So it cannot just be, the, aside from the importance of mega projects, but also distributed renewable energy um, systems, although they're quite smaller, are going to also play a role. So. Uh, there's going to it's going to be a need for a, a huge push in all different models and to uh, to get all different stakeholders uh, on the national and local levels and regional levels to grow and get to this target. Thank you very much, Jessica. Uh, so we um, we don't have any further questions uh, from the audience.
but personally, I do have uh, other questions, but you know, because of the time, I think uh, it is uh, good like we finish uh, our webinar here. Um, uh, I would like to thank all the speakers for joining the webinar. Uh, and I would like also to thank uh, all the uh, audiences who have been there. Uh, also special thanks to Sharon Kong from the Middle East Institute uh, for organizing this event and making it happen. Um, and with that, uh, I wish you a happy day ahead. And thank you again. Thank you, Aisha. Thank you so much, Aisha. Thank you very much, Aisha. Thank you so much. Thank you.